Today we're getting back into our series. Uh, for those that haven't been here before or haven't been in a little while, we've been talking about heart trouble. And so today we're talking and we're going to be studying in Jeremiah 31, talking about a new covenant. And you might be like, you know, Ben, how does this relate to anything we've been talking about? Well, we'll get there. But, you know, when I think about what's new and what happens in our lives, you know, I don't think any of us really, you know, shy away from wanting new things. Maybe it's a new house. Maybe it's a new car. Those are pretty nice things. Or maybe for some of us who like phones, maybe it's a new phone that's usually pretty popular these days with you know, younger people wanting those kind of phones and stuff. But when we have problems in our lives, things that arise that are new, we don't really appreciate those, right? If a problem happens with your house, you're not going to be very happy about it. If a problem happens with your car, you're like, I don't want to have to pay for this. this is gonna, if it's a lot of money, you're going to get upset. But even more so in relationships that we have in our lives, when new things, new problems arise, we really don't like that at all. And I think when we think about relationships, maybe there's that one person you know that always has to be bailed out, right? They always get in trouble, and for whoever bails them out, it's probably a little bit of annoying of a relationship because you're like, you're always getting in trouble. I always have to cover your back. And that's a little bit of what we're getting into here in to Jeremiah 31 of the people of Israel. But the other thing is you have to remember where we were the last time we talked in this series. And it was Psalm 51. We talked of David's penitent heart and his outpouring of his, for his sorrow, of his sadness for what he had done. And it was in the lows that we saw that David wished to find something new. And when we saw and we looked at that in our lives, when we were at the low points in our life, we have to look at God for a renewal. And that's why we're looking at a new covenant today as God hoped to make and would make a better solution for his people. Well, we're going to start in verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, and we're going to start with the sower. So starting in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So the first thing that we have here in this text that I want to talk about is a hope for the future. So at this point in Jeremiah... Jeremiah has already exacted judgment on Israel, they, and Judah, and he knows that they are going to go through a lot, as Jeremiah will then show in Lamentations, such awful things and sorrow. But the Israelite people, they have already been condemned to punishment, and to that one that is not going to be that nice. But amidst the punishment for being unfaithful to God, Jeremiah is telling the people, he's like, listen, there's hope for better days to come. Past what you, what you have to endure for what you've done. Better things will be there. And there's this hope for the future. And you've got to think how encouraging it would have been to the Israelite people. Some people question whether or not you know, they would have cared what happened to their future offspring. I mean, you've got to remember, this is the nation of God's people that God chose. And their heritage, their line is very important to them. And so hope that they know that maybe they wouldn't live through the exile but that their grandchildren would 
or great-grandchildren would get to come back one day to Israel to hope for a better future. That's something that would be encouraging to them. But what about for us? You know, you probably think pretty directly right now, you know, all I'm hoping is 2021 is better than 2020, and you probably think it can't be that easy to beat it, you know? But when we think about that, when we think about the hope for our lives, it's more than just, you know, a better next year. God gives us hope beyond the days, beyond the nights that we live, that there's something far greater, something far more immeasurable that we cannot imagine that's worth this life that was worth Christ dying for us to make sure we get there with God one day, being with God in heaven. That's worth going through the problems, worth going through what we go because God is so great and he will reward us for what we do. And we must go through bad to truly appreciate what is good. And life can be disappointing. And this hope isn't just for us, right? When we think about you know, hope for the Israelites, hope for us. It's hope for everyone. People around the world need something more now. Especially when everyone is you know, locked up, worried about what's going on. People need to see the hope that lies within you. We will talk about that verse in a couple weeks in 1 Peter. And this hope for the future, we need to share with other people. Because the next part that we see in this verse is God's plan for his people, specifically the Israelites first. Right? He's talking about them. He's like, listen, I have this new covenant for you. And when I think about you know, God's plan and what he's desired for his people, we start with the law of Moses. Right? A law that you know, wasn't perfect by any means, but it allowed a temporary solution for sin that was by the blood of bulls and goats. But God knew he had to have a permanent fix to that. And we know as that fix is to be Christ. But he had a plan, a solution to help the people of the world to get around the very issue of sin. But ultimately, when we look at the people of Israel, they abused what God had given to them. Right? The law, which was pretty heavy in how many things you had to do and what you got right, they started living that, like, you know, you know what, if I do if I do my sacrifices, if I do the worship, I can go do whatever I want. You know, I can go worship who I please, I can go act how I please, even though when God clearly says in, you know, the, the parts of the law, most people know the Ten Commandments, you know, you're not to worship other gods, and you're not to make carbon images. Like, he's clear that you're not supposed to do this, but they didn't care. They felt, if we just go through the motions, we'll be fine. And sadly, so many today are in that same position that, they feel like they can just punch a card, come in and out, in and out, and that's fine. But that's not what God's plan is for his people. As we will see, it is much different. But what is ironic to me is that even though thousands of years separate us from the Israelites, we're not really that much different. People still want to do the bare minimum. People still just want to be able to punch their card and do whatever they want to do. But God's plan also involves judgment, right? For those that are unfaithful, he will exact his wrath. And it's there that we see, you know, while God has love and mercy, he has plans for judgment as well. But we see this newness that is talked about. And for a second, just think about the Jewish people. So at this point in Jeremiah, about, before they're going into exile in Babylon, they've had the law of Moses around a thousand years. That is a long time. I asked Alexa the other day while I was writing, 
I said, Alexa, how long the United States been born or been around? She said something like 244 years or something like that. So we're not even at the 250 mark as a country. And you think the Israelites had been living for so long with the same rules, regulations, the same worship protocol. And you know, I think of some of the people today in religious world and you know, how they can want to do and change different things. And you think about the Israelites. If they're told this, what, what, how would they react? To be like, God's like, listen, I'm going to give you a new covenant. They're like, a new covenant, God. We've been living the same way for so long. And then you fast forward to the New Testament, where it's almost 1,500 years since Moses had written the law from God. And the Jewish people are even more set in their ways. They're in their sects now, as they haven't talked to God. You the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so on. And they were even more then resistant to change as Christ came and he preached to them the fulfillment of the very word that they studied, and yet they didn't want to get out of their Jewish practices. They were too set in their ways. But what about us today? When we see this, we should think of a new life, a new hope for us to live for Christ, to put away the old person, to be buried in baptism as Christ died, and to rise again. But so often, when we see people, I think more people today than ever are more concerned with having a new modern building, new modern equipment, just lots of activities and all this kind of stuff. And the question is, what matters to you? You have a choice. Does, Does looking all flashy and new matter, or does having a new, renewed soul, a new person matter to you? Because I don't think a flashy building and endless activities for kids are what's supposed to draw someone into the door. It should be the gospel and people living it out. But we also see that the Israelites were led by the hand. And I like this wording by Jeremiah through God that he's writing. In, they're led out of Egypt. You know? And you think about this, I think about you know, a parent with a young child holding their hand. Right? You want to make sure the child doesn't get lost, so you hold their hand. But at some point, the parent will say to the child, you can do this, you don't need me to maybe use the words, don't, you don't need me to keep holding your hand on this. You're big enough to do this on your own now. And while we get into you know, parenting issues about how to do that kind of thing, you know, I'm not a parent, I'm not going to talk about that. But I think we see the same problem when we come to our faith, and I could talk about that. That so many people are in church, and they're only led by the hand on Sundays, you know, if they have Wednesdays or Sunday nights, all they're doing is their, their spiritual nourishment is just led by whoever's teaching them in class or on the pulpit. That's it. They go home and they're done. And so many people today, their faith is so shallow because they've been led by the hand so much of their life and not able to dig it. At some point, you need to be digging into the Bible and asking some questions. I'm not talking about you know, discrediting the Bible or anything, but understanding why we believe it's reliable and understanding why we do what we do. Because when you dig deep and when you learn and when you study, it'll build and make such a great foundation for you. But how are we ever going to live a life anew? How are you going to be a new person if you can't even grow? We have to learn how to grow on our own if we ever can expect to be a person anew in Christ. But lastly, in this verse here, in these two verses, is that their trust, God's trust, was broken. And God, through Jeremiah, mentions that God is, was their husband, even though they broke his covenant. And I know, for me, personally, this type of verse hits harder because of the family that I grew up in. And God's calling Israel out for their adultery, and he says, 
in Hosea, a whole book which in the future I look forward to us studying, uh, how Hosea is the literal manifestation of God and Israel's relationship. And Hosea's wife is Israel, being so adulterous and cheating on Hosea. And God, God likes to use this analogy not only you know, in the negative but in the positive. But all of us can relate to broken trust, right? You've probably had somebody break your trust before. I mean, we're all human. And you've probably broken someone's trust, even though you might not like to admit it. And then we know it's hard to get that trust back when you've broken it, but it's even harder to give it once it's been broken. And you think about God in this context of the Israelite people and how often they wanted to return to Egypt. You think From the start of when they left, they wanted to go back. Even last week in Numbers 13, we saw the whole collective of the people were like, listen, let's ditch Moses and Aaron. Let's find somebody else and let's just go back to Egypt. At least there we won't die. They, they so many times wanted to just abandon God and abandon the covenant that he had made in them. But when we think of this, when we think of the trust that we have broken against God and the sins that we have committed, maybe you think of, you know, okay, so if Israel did this so many times, you know, it's a cycle. Even look through the cycle of the judges every single time. It's Israel's like, yay, God, we like you. Oh, we're going to leave you. God, please help us. Yay, God, we like you. And it's a cycle all through the judges, just each and every judge that comes back, trying to get them back on track. And you're like, well, that seems kind of dumb. You know, why, why is God sticking it out? Maybe you like, you know, it sounds like a naive puppy or something, a puppy that doesn't understand when it gets punished, but it still loves its owner anyways. No, but that's not what God is at all. Right? God isn't doing this because he's naive or anything. God loves his people so much. His love is so much bigger than what we do. His love is never ending. And that's why when we break his trust, when the Israelites broke his trust, he could still love them. He could still care for them because it's who he is as God. God is so much bigger than our problems, and God has the opportunity, as we studied in Psalm 51, to forgive those sins. And when we think about this broken trust, those us, I want to move to the soil that we talk about here. In verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the first thing I want to mention here is the law within. And I love how this is where God starts the talk of this covenant, right? He's like, this new covenant, I'm going to write it within them, my law within them. So before, you know, God had chosen to have, you know, Moses you know, write it on some tablets, and they had scrolls and what else. And you think of all that they had, and we think today of our written word, but as we've talked about in the past weeks, Christianity isn't lived through words, but it's lived through our lives and how we take the, lot, take the words in God's book, in the Bible, and we apply them and live them. It starts with serving and loving inside of us, right? That's one of the lessons we had, living and serving God from the inside out. And I love how God... He specifies this. It isn't just the law or a law. It's my law. God says, my law I'm going to put within them. And you think, I think of today so many people 
who like to do what they wish with God's word, interpret it however they want, and make it condone sin, but they're losing the picture, right? This isn't about what I want. This isn't about what I think or what I feel or what I want to be right. God is saying, you know, it's my law, it's his, and then we have to keep that in our perspective when we're living our lives, that it's his, not ours. I think of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, which talks of how our body is not our own, for it was bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. We need to have God's law put within us, not just hanging on the outside of us. And with that comes, as God says here, written on the heart. And again, we see, and we get back to what we're talking about, these heart issues, about what's going on with the world today, what's going on with the church, is that people are trying to claim Christianity, they're trying to live, and yet they're living lives that on the outside seem like Christianity, but it's because their heart is not affected. It didn't matter how much the Israelites had written down, right? You think of how many laws and regulations they had. I mean, if you've read Leviticus, you don't want to read it a second time because of how awful and boring it is. You think of all the rules and regulations that are there, and you kind of feel sorry for them, but yet, even with it all written in front of them, they couldn't stand to do it. And why? Because they just went through the motion. So God says, listen, I'm going to make it different this time. My new covenant is going to focus on the heart. Because that's where Christianity is lived. That's why we've talked about each of the lessons that we have so far. Talking about what's on the inside of us in Matthew 15 and what comes out of the heart that defiles a person. And talking about in Deuteronomy, you've got to remember, we, we heard this already. God says in Deuteronomy through Moses, so the Lord says to write my word on your heart. God has already said this once, but yet the people didn't listen. And we keep hearing this because we need to hear this as people. We need to really put this in deep on us. But ultimately, when I think of the writing that goes on, because, you know, it's not just like a magical poof. You know, it's a writing that occurs, but we decide whether that writing stays. You know, ultimately, we are all made in God's image. But we choose whether or not we serve God. We choose whether or not we are going to live for him or live for ourselves. And so the question is, what kind of soil are you? Are you, rock, are you the one that is rocky? Are you the one that has thorns? And I think sometimes when we think of this parable, we're like, oh, I want to be. Well, hopefully you're thinking that I want to be that soil because no one is the pure soil. No one is that perfect Soil that grows God's word. God has to clean you out first. He has to get the rocks and thorns out of your lives, out of your hearts, so that God's word can grow. Because through God is how we are made to be that best soil. But I want to transition into talking about some of these. And you, you've heard some of my sermons as we've been here already. I like talking about the pronouns that are in the text because they're impactful. And they're direct not only to the Israelites, but to us. So God says, he says, I want to be their God. And he's saying not just, you know, for the Israeli people, but for all people, I want to be theirs. God Almighty, the creator of the world, wants to be their God. He loves mankind so much that he gives them a new covenant, a better, perfect covenant, as we see, will happen with Christ. And he wants to be theirs. He has that genuine desire. Even when we choose to abandon him, even when humanity chooses to try to say that God does not exist, that God did not make this world. 
God still wants to be there is because he loves them so much. When we think about how we live our lives, and when we look at others, sometimes, you know, we let our emotions get the best of us. But when we see everyone out in the world, you need to remember that that is someone that God wants, that he wants to be theirs. So regardless of what maybe they had done to us, and regardless of what we think we want to say, we need to remember that they're still made in God's image and they're still someone that God wants to be theirs. But also that God talks of his people. He says, I shall be their God and they shall be my people. I don't know about you, but thinking about that hits me kind of hard. God says, listen, I want you to be mine. You will be my people. He is possessive of the people that he wants, all the people of his creation. He wants us to be his. And when we think of being God's, I hope that gives you some perspective in your life. If you commit, if you dedicate your life to Christ, having been buried in baptism and being risen anew, how are you perceiving your life? Is it more about what I want to do? Or is it more about making sure I'm living for God? Because he wants me to be his people. I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be where I am without God. I can't imagine a life, I can't imagine any life where I don't live and follow God. Because for so long he has been part of my identity and I've messed up. We've all messed up at times and fallen and looked where we shouldn't have to ourselves, right? To try to find ourselves for what we need. But in reality, it's God who we need to be and we need to want to be his people. Because he wants us. He truly wants us to be his. And that should be reassuring. That should be filling us with confidence and proudness that the creator of the world wants us. But that, the question is, are we claiming him as ours? Are we saying that he is our God? Because again, when we think of Deuteronomy, Moses says, the Lord, your God. He talks to them and he says, you know, God is yours, but are you claiming him? Because the Israelites sure didn't seem like they were, right? They were serving other gods. They were doing what they weren't supposed to. And so our question is, are we, are we going to be the people that claim God? Are we proud to be a Christian? Proud to be a child of God? Proud to believe and to know the Bible? Or are we ashamed of that? We're like, oh, those people, you know, oh, I don't, I don't believe what they believe. You know, I believe something, you know, a, a little bit different. That, and you're just trying to cover for yourself because you feel bad. Maybe you feel embarrassed or you don't want to stick out. But who are you claiming? Are you claiming him as yours? Is he our God, really? Or is he not? But lastly, a sojourner. And I didn't just pick this to have three S's, you know. I am a preacher. But it's, the word sojourner, I know, is a little old. It's a little dated, but it's biblical in its significance and what it uses. And it's, in general, used to define someone who dwells somewhere temporarily. And as we've had different prayers offered and different things talked about, we are all sojourners in one sense of the word, right? We are all temporarily dwelling here. The question is, where are we going? What are we doing? Ending in verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor 
and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We see that I want to start with, not with the neighbor talk, because, I mean, that was kind of mentioned. You know, some of the prayers were kind of t- stealing some of my thunder. So maybe I need to vet your guys' prayers or something. But we're not talking about, like, you know, who's your neighbor? You know, Christ has asked, you know, Rabbi, who is my neighbor? And you know, Christ has this discussion. That's not what I want to talk about. But instead, what they were supposed to teach. They were supposed to teach each other, you know, saying, know God. So they were supposed to teach knowing God. And that's ultimately, you know, what we're teaching. What we need to teach other people and teach each other is knowing God more. Knowing God better. And the thing about that is you can never fully know that, right? As, as much as you live your life, you can keep studying the Bible, and you can keep learning more about God, and you'll never get there. And that's not something to be discouraging, and it's not a challenge. I mean, if you, if you want to take me up on that challenge, go ahead. I mean, I bet it would be fun. But it's the fact that it's not about us and what we can do. You're like, oh, I really want to know God. But God is so infinite, so vast in his nature. He's all-knowing. How could we ever know everything about one who is all-knowing and infinite and everywhere? It just doesn't work for us. But what it does work is God through creation, through his word, and through all that we see ourselves. We can see enough to know who God is on a certain level. We have enough to see him, enough to show that he is the Lord of the heavens, he is the creator of this world. And that should humble us as we look into living our lives and to serving him, to knowing that I serve a God that is so big, I could spend my whole life learning about him and still have more. But in that, in that knowing of God, when we think about that, Are we doing the same? Are we teaching that? Are we teaching to know God or are we just teaching whatever we feel like? And the people in the world, that's what we got to teach. Knowing God, part of knowing God is Christ, right? God is part of Christ. They're part of the Godhead. And it just stems down from there and so much and so on and so forth and how Christ died for us and who God is. We can see God's nature all throughout the word and how each book shows who he is. And that's what we're supposed to teach. But what do we say? And you might be like, well, Ben, what do we say about what? Politics? Probably shouldn't talk about that. Pandemic? Probably don't want to think about that. But what do we say about God? What do we say to other people about God in general? And how do we speak? You know, I've been doing premarital counseling. I was told that was a good idea. And yet, when they talk to us, they've already said something like, okay, You need to think about what you're going to say and think about the tone that you're going to say it because saying I love you in a certain tone sounds a bit different from saying it in a happy tone, you know? She's going to think something different if you say it like that. And so when we speak, we're not just thinking about, you know, if somebody says something and you want to prove them wrong, but you've got to think about how you're speaking, how you're talking to each other, not just about biblical things, but in general, the tone of which you approach each other. But even more so... I've always heard, you know, actions speak louder than words. So even if we go out into the world and we, if people say and speak things about God and they go around and do the exact opposite, you really think people are going to care what they say? You completely discredit what you say if you go back on your word. 
So what do we say when we're out in front of people? When we're talking about God? Do we talk about knowing him? Do we talk about what he says? Because it's not about what I think. Right? In one of the classes that I had at school, we talked about people asking about Bible questions. The, the professor, he's like, listen, just pause for a second. He's like, you don't have to answer them immediately, even though when I worked in the youth, they really wanted answers immediately. And so I'm like, listen, you're going to have to give me a little bit to give you like an exact answer to your question. And you know, it's not going to hopefully hurt anyone if they're asking about something. But if they truly want to know, you want to give them the best answer. And it's not what I think. It's not about my church or my beliefs. It's about what God says. This is God's church and we are God's people. And so we want to resonate what God says in his word. But also this question of no versus no. And it's first off I see in people of, when we talk to them, right? And they say, listen, no. I know what you're saying. I know what you believe. You believe everyone else is going to hell and you believe everyone is wrong. And people might say, no, I don't want to hear what you think. They might use those in a sentence against people because they've already heard, sadly, somebody who didn't speak maybe properly or maybe their heart has been hardened because they're offended by what God says. But there's a flip side of this because not only do we get to say whether or not we know God, but God will get to say it one day for us. And so will he say to us, I know you, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or will he say, no, I don't know who you are. I've never heard of you. And we'll go to the left. God will get the last opportunity to say this. But it, for either of those parties, for those that, you know, are against God and angry towards him and for those that serve him. God offers forgiveness for all through his son. And this is where we'll end today. Remember where we came from, Psalm 51, where David is asking for forgiveness. And here again, God says to his people, listen, I'm going to forgive you for your iniquity and I will remember your sins no more. God offers forgiveness Christ's perfect blood washes through the wrongdoings, making us the best we can be. But it isn't about us. It's about the one who is greater than us, the sower, right? who sowed the seed in us to put his law within us and his word on our hearts. And God offers that forgiveness to us through his son. But the question is, are you new or are you old? Are you living life as a new person? through God, through Christ and his washing, his cleansing blood? Or are you struggling? Have you not put away the old person or has the old person been having trouble of getting rid of your past? For those that have had the opportunity to put the old person away and are struggling with it, the, uh, we always have an opportunity, but now we have a specific opportunity. If you want to come forward for prayers, for those that have not had that opportunity, to put on Christ in baptism, to be cleansed anew, to have your soil washed out and to be made new by the one true sower. So where do you stand? Please come now as we stand and sing. Amen.